James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is as far as we're going to get tonight, but isn't this another fun passage? Actually, though, if we let God speak to us through this tonight, you're going to see its benefit. Now, some of you also might think, well, this study is really not for me because it's written to the rich and I'm poor. But we all need to be aware of the temptation to desire to become rich in this life. And if it wasn't in each of one of us, the health and wealth preachers wouldn't have such big churches. You ever thought about that? How it's very easy for the health and wealth preachers to fill stadiums because all of us have to be careful of what we're going to look at tonight when it comes to a desire for things and wealth. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Just look at verse 10. It says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So what we're going to do tonight, before we break down chapter 5, I'm going to come back and break down chapter 5, almost verse by verse in just a little bit. But before we do that, I want to do a background foundational study on what the Bible actually says about riches and financial wealth and possessions in this life. So let me ask you a question. Biblically, is it wrong to be rich? No. Actually, the Bible actually says very clearly, I'm going to show you just a few places, that God's the one who provides us the ability to be rich. And if God's the one who provides us with the ability to be rich, can't be a bad thing if God's the one who does it. Go, go to Deuteronomy chapter 8 real quick. I'll show you a couple of places that talk about this. Deuteronomy chapter 8, we'll look at one verse, verse 18. Deuteronomy 8, chapter 8, verse 18. He says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. He's just said to him, when you do become wealthy, he said, don't think it's by the strength of your right hand or your own power you've done this. It's God who gives you the ability to become wealthy. Go to Proverbs chapter 10. Look at verse 22. Proverbs 10, verse 22. It says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Take you to one more passage that kind of lays this foundation. 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3, look at verses 5 through 14. Solomon is a young boy, and he's just become the king of Israel. Look at verse 3. 
Solomon loved the Lord. Sorry, not chapter, chapter 3, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of, my, of David, my father. Although I'm but a little child, I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, great, your, this your great people? Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and haven't asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So God says, look, because you've asked for wisdom and not wealth and all this stuff, he goes, I'm going to give you that. So in and of itself, if riches and being rich was a sin, then God causes sin. No, it's not a bad thing to be rich, but... As with all of God's gifts, our attitude toward our money is what becomes sin or not. As you know, God is the giver of lots of good gifts. But we, when we start to put our faith in the gift instead of the giver, we start to worship the gift instead of the giver, we start to move into sin. Go to 1 Timothy again. Go back to chapter 6, but look at verses 17 through 19. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes, that's going to be important, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take a hold of that which is truly life. He says, look, if you're wealthy in this life, don't set your hope and your confidence in that wealth, but actually set your hope and your confidence in God. And as you're going to see, one of the ways that God is going to test our faith in him or whether or not we have our faith in our and our confidence in our wealth is he's a lot of times going to ask us to give it away. And we, it's really easy to pretend like, uh, well, well I, I have no problem being willing to be generous. But when it push comes to shove, when we start worrying about how much is going to be left for me, we all of a sudden it starts to show us where our, real, our heart is. And so we're going to get to that in just a little bit. 
We're to hold our possessions so loosely that if God asked us to give them all away, we would because our trust is in Him and His provision for us, not in our money or our possessions. Now, let me say something to you, though, before we go any further. This truth that we're looking at doesn't just apply to those who are rich in wealth in this life. It applies to all of us. I'm going to show you a couple of passages that actually talk about how the poor are supposed to be having that same attitude that we're willing to share and be generous. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 28. It says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This isn't written to a rich person. This is actually written to a person that's probably so poor they felt they had to steal to take care of themselves. And he says, now that you're saved, don't live like that anymore. Go find a job, get yourself a job and work with your hands so that you'll have something to share with anyone in need. Again, as you're going to see, and we're going to be laying this all out for you tonight, God is the one who provides us with the ability to get wealth, but he doesn't provide us with the ability to get wealth so that we can have wealth and put our faith in our wealth. He provides us with the ability to have wealth so that we can share that wealth. And what he wants to do is to teach us how to be generous, whether we're rich or whether we consider ourselves not rich. That should be our attitude of, hey, whether, as you know, the Bible says he's been faithful with little will be faithful with much. I've had for years and years of being a pastor, people come and say, Pastor, we're not able to give a whole lot right now. But I promise you, if we win the lottery, we're going to write a big check. I don't ever say anything at that time because the prophet in me wants to say a lot of things in that time. But I think to myself this. The Bible says if you're not faithful with little, you won't be faithful with much. So you can convince yourself all you want. As soon as I get money, then I'm going to be somebody I'm not. Good luck with that. Go to Proverbs 21. Look at verses 25 through 26. Proverbs 21, verses 25 and 26. The desire of the sluggard kills him. For his hands refuse to labor all day long. He craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. Again, we're not talking just to the rich here. We're talking to all of us. We should have an attitude that actually says, I so believe that God's going to take care of me and meet all of my needs. If I feel like he's told me to give it, I'll give it away. I'll give it away because God will take care of me. The root of generosity is not how much we have to give, but simply a trust that God will provide us with everything we need. Go to Psalm 112 and look at verses 1 through 10. This is a, a passage that I actually have been meditating on for a couple of years now. And there's so much here, but I'm not going to give you two years of meditation. I'm just going to point out a couple of things here. And you're going to see, actually, from this passage, Paul quote from here. Later on, when we get to another part of our study for tonight, Psalm 112, look at verses 1 through 10. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. 
and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and merciful and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, for the righteous will never be moved. He'll be remembered forever. He's not even afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He'll not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. You'll see that verse later on today. And the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. So here we see that the one who really trusts in the Lord, he's not even worried about bad news. That doesn't mean there's not going to be bad news, but he doesn't fear bad news. Why? Because even if I hear bad news, God's still for me. He's going to take the bad and he's going to cause it to work for what? For good. I can count it a joy. It's all joy. We saw in James chapter one when we face trials because God's going to use this trial and he's going to produce something good out of it. When we so trust the Lord, when it comes to our money, even we are willing to share it and be generous. Why? Because we're not worried about making sure we have enough for ourselves because we so believe that God's going to take care of us. We just give it away. And as you're going to see in a little bit later, for those who really trust the Lord in that way and are generous with what they have, God just blesses them with more. So that they can keep sharing it. He actually wants us to be conduits of his grace. But many of us, unfortunately, have been raised that God needs our help taking care of ourselves financially. And many of us have been raised in churches that thought if we can get five for a dollar instead of four for a dollar, that's being a good steward. And we feel like we have to help God. And I'm going to talk to you about some of those things in a little bit tonight as well in ways as we break down the book of James. I'm going to show you some ways that we all fall into that mindset. But I, I have said this before and I'm going to say it to you again. Over the years, God began to speak to me in this area Mainly in the area of the fact that I kept reading about all these passages about generosity. And it hit me one day, God would never ask me to do something or be something he's not. Correct? So if God is telling me to be generous, what does that tell me about God? He's generous. And when I started to really believe that God is generous and he's not a miser. And I stopped worrying about whether or not I have enough. And I just started giving it away. Folks, I'm just going to tell you straight up. God's word is true. He provides and blesses so that you can keep giving it away. Now, it took me unlearning a lot of years of wrong teaching because I was kind of raised that, well, God helps those who help themselves. And I remember hearing we can't have anything nice. And all of a sudden, I started to think that God was trying to see if I spent my money wisely or whatever. Instead, I've learned we now in our family have this phrase. It's only money. If there's a bill, pay it. Something need to be repaired? Write the check. It's just money. But what if, again, God's already promised he's going to take care of us. So let's just do what we have to do. But what if he tells us to give some away? Give it away. Why? Because when you see it as only money, you see it as just a tool and it no longer has any power over you. But you just got to get to that point where you really believe that God will take care of you. Go to Philippians chapter four. We love to quote this passage of scripture that I'm about to read to you, but we quote it totally out of context. And I also can't wait to show you how in this passage, Paul breaks some cardinal rules of people that are in ministry living off of others donations. Go to Philippians chapter 4, look at verses 14 and following. 
He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble right into the Macedonian church there in Philippi. And he says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Look at what he says. My God will supply all your needs. And we all like to quote that. My God will supply all your needs. Let's look at the context. The context was written to a church and people, Christians who were generous, taking care of giving. And you're going to, we're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 in just a little bit, some more description of this church and their generosity. But listen, this was a church that was willing to support ministry, give it away, even though they were poor. And God says, because you so trust him in that way, God will take care of all your needs. Let me say something to you, folks. If you think God needs your help to take care of you, he won't bless you like that. He says, my God will supply all your needs. Why? Because you trust him and you're sharing and you're generous. Now, look also here for those of us who are in, in uh, um, ministry, Christian ministry and we live off of people's donations. He, Paul does two things here that go against everything we've ever seen in Christian ministries. He says, first of all, he says, you're the only church that helped in supporting by the way, how many times have we heard ministries say we need more monthly supporters? We, we don't have enough monthly supporters. He goes, you guys are the only ones that helped, and I'm not worried about that. And he said, and on top of that, we've received full payment and more. We're amply supplied. By the way, Christian ministries have been taught you never tell anybody when you're doing well. Because if you tell them you're doing well, what was, why do we not want to tell people we're doing well? they might stop giving. Listen closely to the heart behind that. When you're afraid to say God has blessed, it's because you're afraid that if you tell them you've been blessed, they may stop giving. And so you're still trying to control and manipulate who gives and who doesn't. I remember in years past, if my wife and I were gonna go on a trip to Alaska like we did for our 30th wedding anniversary, I used to be the kind of guy that wouldn't tell people that. Because if people know we went on a trip to Alaska, they might think, boy, he's making so much money, he can go to Alaska. I can't afford to go to Alaska. I'm not giving to that ministry. And I used to, for fear of what people might think, not tell people what God had done in blessing us. But the Bible talks about rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. And I decided years ago, my wife says, Good, you don't have any secrets. I said, I'd rather just let everybody know everything than try to figure out who I just told a lie to lately. You know, I just lit it all out. And also it set me free because, listen, if some of you are listening to this right now and you say, man, just a preacher is doing well and Jim and Becky can afford to go to Alaska cruises. Oh, well, maybe we shouldn't. You know what? I can look you in the eye and say, if you all stop giving, God's going to take care of us. Because he doesn't supply our needs with help. He does it himself. Now, Paul, that's why Paul said, I'm not seeking the gift when I write this to you. 
I'm seeking what's going to be rewarded. You're going to be rewarded for what's going to be credited to your account. Actually, go back to chapter 4 and look at verses 10 through 13. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Listen closely. For I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That famous verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, is in the context of Paul saying, I've learned the secret of being content in whatever situation I'm in. I know what it's like to have a need. I know what it's like to be brought low. I know what it's like to have plenty. And you know what? When I have plenty, I don't feel better because my supply is still God. And when I'm in need, I don't worry because my supply is God. Have you ever noticed that when God took care of a couple of widows in the Bible, one widow, the prophet said, look, every time you open the cupboard, there'll be enough there. The other widow, he says, go gather all these jars you can find and just take this one jar of oil and pour it and fill it up. And they filled all these jars and she was told to live off the surplus. One widow was told it'll never run out. You'll always have is everything you need. But every time you open the cupboard, it'll be there. You won't see it. But once it's and there's a need, it'll be there. And the other one is told to live off the surplus. And I want an honest answer right now. Which widow would you rather be? The surplus. Do you know why? Because we really don't believe that God will take care of us. I, I, I'll be honest with you. God made a statement to me years ago. He said, Jim, if I told you that any time you needed something, it was in my pocket and I would give it to you every single time, 100% of the time, or I'd give you a choice of me just putting however many millions in the bank and it would be enough to take care of you the rest of your life, which would you rather? And I had to say, God, I'm really sorry, but I think I'd rather see it in the bank. And he says, why? Because I really don't believe that he will provide. Do you understand? We all would rather see it in the bank, wouldn't we? He's shown us our heart. Do we really, really believe that he'll take care of us? And I also had to be honest and take it to another level and say, Lord, you also would keep your promise, but sometimes you'd hold off on giving it to me for a day or two. And I don't like that. If it's in the bank, I can get it when I want it. Not when you say, because again, we're seeing your heart, aren't we? And this is a journey that all of us have to go through. That's why we have to renew our minds. Do we really believe that God's going to take care of us? We've put our faith in him when it comes to our salvation. We've hopefully put all our eggs in that basket and we don't worry about whether or not we're going to heaven. But he says, I want you to trust me in all of your life. And that's where this whole riches thing really comes to fruition. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 15. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And he's using the Philippians that we just read about that Paul was writing to as an example for the Corinthians. All right. He says uh, in 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 and following, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. In other words, they gave to their church first and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus, that is, he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. In other words, he's reminding them they had agreed to take a love offering for these poor in Jerusalem. So I say this, he says in verse 8, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might also become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desire to do it. So now finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need and there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Jump over to chapter 9. Look at verses 6 through 15. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or even under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Does that sound familiar? That's in Psalm 112, verse 9. It's talking about Jesus. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. Look at that next word. I've highlighted it in my Bible. Will supply and multiply your seed so that you can have a big bank account and be comfortable the rest of your life? No. For what? For sowing. And increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of the servants, they'll glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and all others. Now listen closely. Paul says, giving should never be forced. It shouldn't uh, be done reluctantly. Years ago, I've told this story a time or two, but years ago, back when Billy Graham was still alive and his wife Ruth was still alive, there's a story of them sitting in a church service and the offering plate goes by. And as the offering plate went by, this is pre-COVID before churches stopped taking, passing the plate, but as the offering plate went by, Billy put in a, a bill. And then he realized that that wasn't the bill he meant to put in. And he reached back as it went in front of his wife to go get the bill. His wife slapped his hand and said, what are you doing? He goes, I put in a 10. I meant to put in a five. Ruth looked at him quick as anything. And she said, well, honey, that 10 is now a five in the eyes of the Lord. So don't worry about it. 
he responds to the attitude of our heart. You can do the right thing and write the check, but if you do it grumbling and miserably and unhappy, you're not going to get the reward. God wants a cheerful giver. And that's why giving should never be forced. We're not under the law. I think the Bible kind of still hints at the fact that our giving as Christians should be more than 10%. In the Old Testament, there was tithes and offerings. I think actually, biblically, our giving should be way more than just 10%, which was the law. But it should never be forced. God wants us to do it willfully, cheerfully, not because we're under law. But the heart of this issue, folks, and that's what's going to help us as we go back to James chapter 5. The heart of this issue is where we're trusting. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verses 19 through 21 and then verse 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jump to verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The issue is where your heart is. Now, I'm going to stop real quick and make a couple of statements that you need to hear. This is where Christians, unfortunately, want to jump in and tell each of you how to spend your money. Whether or not it's okay to have two houses or a boat and a couple of cars. And we want to all of a sudden become Lord. We're going to deal with that more next week when we get to chapter 5, verses uh, 7 through 12, where... James says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And then he says, don't grumble against one another. And by the way, I'm going to show you next week when we get into our study how it's amazing how in almost every single passage that the Bible uses to talk about being ready for the return of Jesus and looking for the return of Jesus. It then quickly says, oh, and treat each other good in the meantime. And I'm going to show you why the expectation of Jesus's return will be a temptation for us to judge each other. And James is going to tell us next week, the real judge is standing at the door. So don't become the Lord of everybody around you. Because we could take this passage and do like the Pharisees. You know how the Pharisees heard the law of God that we're to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then they wrote 300 more extra rules that say, here's how you keep it holy. You can't do this and you can't do that. And we have a tendency to do that as well. The Bible talks about how we're to be generous and we're not to be storing up stuff for ourselves. And we're going to quickly go, that means you can't have a car and you can't, you know what I'm saying? You can't have this and you can't have, no, 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 no. God gives us things to enjoy. And if the Holy Spirit is not telling you to get rid of all your stuff, enjoy it. Just make sure you're not putting your confidence in it. Do you understand? And actually, God might have blessed us with some of those boats so we can do ministry with our boat. Because there are people that have boats that need the Lord, don't, aren't they? Now, when I was pastor in Chicago, there was a man who uh, he and his wife worked for one of the five richest men in Chicago. And this man made some good money and he actually had his own yacht. He had his own motorhome. Not the guy that he worked for. This is the guy that went to our church. He had his own yacht and his, his motorhome was worth more than our house. The yacht was amazing. And they would go regularly to places where the super rich would go and use their yachts and their motorhomes and 
And God put a call in their life and they actually, he quit his job and they went and bought a camp resort where the super rich go with their motorhomes and their yachts in Wisconsin. And he actually went there to go share the gospel with them. He kept his yacht, he kept his motorhome, and they went and did ministry up there in Wisconsin to bring the gospel to the people who were the super rich. God blessed him to be super rich, but God had a reason for him to be blessed with being super rich. We have a tendency that sometimes when we have a surplus to start panicking and think, well, I'm sinning because I've got this surplus. No, relax. If God's given you a surplus, he's going to tell you why he's given you the surplus. And you don't do anything with the surplus until he tells you. You don't become the Lord of your life and determine what you're supposed to do. And back when the nation of Israel was brought out of Egypt and out of slavery, if you remember when the death angel was passing over, God gave this instruction. He says, look, when they tell you to go and get out of here, ask them for their gold, their silver, and their precious cloth. God told them specifically, you ask them for their gold, their silver, and their precious cloth. So they do. And the scripture says they plundered the Egyptians. Now the slaves end up out in the wilderness and God says a few weeks later, he says, I'll tell you what, I want you guys to build me a tabernacle, a moving tabernacle so that I can come and dwell with you. Oh, by the way, I'm going to want these things built out of gold, these things built out of silver, these things made out of precious cloth. And I've even chosen who I want to do the building of it. Can you imagine the slaves going, God, we're slaves. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. Where are we going to get gold? And so, oh, never mind. I know where that came from. Now I know why you blessed me with that. So some of you might have some excess. That's okay. Don't let your brother and sister tell you what you're supposed to do with it. They're not going to be your judge. They're not going to be your Lord. And don't panic and think, i got to do something with this. No, no, no. Say, Lord, you've blessed me with this. Why? And don't do anything until you know what he said. And relax. He may not tell you right away. And just be okay with that. Where your heart is, that, sorry, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. If your treasure is in the stuff that you have, then your heart's going to be there. If your treasure is God, that's where your heart's going to be. Go to Luke chapter 12. I promise you, we're going back to James. But we need this in order to really grasp what James is saying. Luke chapter 12, look at verse 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'm going to tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's going to be important when we get to James. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself down here and is not rich toward God. Go to Luke 18. Look at verses 18 through 23. Luke 18, start in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. By the way, Jesus wasn't saying he wasn't good. 
But don't miss what Jesus is saying to this young man. If Jesus says to him, no one is good except God, what was he saying to this young man about himself? Not just that he's God. What's this guy saying to this young man about the young man? If no one's good but God, you ain't good. Well, Jesus knows this guy thinks he is. Keep reading. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth because I'm pretty good. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Then Jesus then goes on and says to his disciples, by the way, it's kind of hard for a rich person to get into heaven. Now, don't miss this. Giving should never be under compulsion. That's why you cannot take this story and say, in order to be a follower of Jesus, I have to get, every, get rid of everything I have. No, 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 no. What Jesus was doing in this situation was just simply putting this test before the man to see if he was willing to choose God or his possessions. And what did he do? He chose his possessions. Again, giving should never be under compulsion, nor reluctantly. We need to let the Holy Spirit tell us what it is he wants us to do with what it is he's blessed us with. But the question is, and let's go back to James 5 now. The question is, what are you trusting in? Look at verses 1 through 6 now. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches that you've stored up have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. And your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now we're just going to stop right here. He says to the rich who trust in their wealth and that hoarded their money that it has become worthless now and backfired on them. If God blesses us, with possessions and wealth. Has he done it so that we would feel comfortable and make sure we're all taken care of? No, he's done it so that we would do what? Distribute it as he directs. Now, with that in mind, the fact that they didn't distribute it and they just stored it up for themselves, he says on the day of judgment, that's actually going to backfire on you. Go to Job 27. Job chapter 27, just one verse, verse 8. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will all that stuff they stored up for themselves help them in that day? Not one bit. Go to Psalm 39. Psalm 39 Verses 4 through 6. Psalm 39, verses 4 through 6. If I get the psalm, it would be a little bit better. There we go. Psalm 39, verses 4 through 6. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as mere, a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth, and he doesn't know 
who will gather. You remember that passage where Jesus told the parable about the man who stored up all this money and then he dies? Who's going to get all that now, he said. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter um, 8. Sorry, chapter 5, verse 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8. Verses 8 and following. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at that matter. For the high official is watched by a higher one, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. In other, things, in other words, things done properly. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, if you've got five cars and seven boats, you can't use them all at once. You just you can look at them. By the way, I have a friend who's pretty wealthy, and he says, let me just tell you something. The more stuff you have, the more stuff you got to insure. And the more stuff you got to insure, the more stuff you got to maintain. He goes, it's not as fun as everybody thinks it is. Keep reading. Sweep, sleep, sweet is the sleep, verse 12, of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but a full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. This is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by the owner, to the, by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And if he's the father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb. He, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Folks, you probably met some of these people. People that actually have a lot, but they don't feel like it's enough. And they're like misers. And they hoard. And they store and store and store. And they got more than they'll ever need for the rest of their life. But they don't feel like they do. And they're miserable. I hope none of you are in that situation. But I also hope none of you are sitting there also thinking, well, I don't have to worry about that. I don't got a lot of stuff. And, but boy, I would do so many different things if I had money. Again, you're putting your confidence in money and not in the Lord. Do you really believe that God will bless you with whatever he has for you and everything that you need he'll give? Then give your things away. Share. Be generous. We're going to get to some specifics here in just a second without becoming the Holy Spirit. But here... James writes to these rich and he says, look, you've hoarded all this stuff and your riches have rotted. Your garments are now moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. But look at verse 8. Remember verse 8. We don't have to turn there. But remember verse 8 in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. He says, I have seen the poor people abused. Look at what he says next in verses 3b and following. He says, you've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. We're going to come back to he does not resist you in just a second. But in storing up wealth for themselves, they not only stored up wealth for themselves 
and it rotted and it's going to backfire on them. They also did so to the detriment of the poor and the righteous. James says you got wealthy by cheating. Not actually being generous. By the way, you ever notice how God set up in his law that when they were to harvest in the field, they weren't to harvest the corners? Why weren't they to harvest in the corners? That was for the poor. And they, he also said that as they're harvesting, if something fell, they weren't to pick it up. That was also for the poor. And if you remember when the whole Ruth and Boaz story happens and Ruth goes and works in the field of Boaz and he sees, he says to his harvesters, be sloppy. Lipmore hit the ground. And then when she goes and asks if he'll become a kinsman redeemer, what does he do? He says to her, hey, hold out your, your cloak there a little. And he just dumps grain into it. So much so that when she went back, Naomi said, what in the world? This man was wealthy, was he not? He had workers, he had possessions, but he also was extremely generous. Why? Because he wasn't worried about making sure he was breaking even. He, was, he had a God who was going to take care of him. But God cares for the poor. Now, God knows how we have dealt with other people. I'm going to ask you a question or two. Have you cheated someone to make a few extra bucks for yourself? Have you ever gotten the wrong change and it was to your benefit? And you thought to yourself, that's a big corporation. Walmart won't miss it. Have you ever been skimpy on a tip because you thought, well, they didn't earn it. They haven't, uh, my food wasn't that good. Once you start doing those types of things, you again, setting yourself up as judge as to who's worthy of getting money or who's not. I used to wait tables, by the way, years and years ago in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sorry, it was Fairfax, Virginia. It was a Chesapeake-based seafood house. That's how many years ago it was, almost 40 years ago. And I remember being in the kitchen one day, picking up my order, and another waitress came storming through those doors, you know, into the kitchen. And she goes, I just saw the people at my table praying. That means I'm not going to get a tip. Then another one stormed in with a track in her hand and said, another blankety-blank track. This won't feed my kids. How many of us as Christians trying to be good stewards of God's money have been cheap? Folks, I'm going to tell you, because God's changed our heart and our family when it comes to money, and we just don't see it as worth anything anymore, and we just simply say it's just, it's just money, we have gone overboard on purpose for a couple of reasons. One, we live on an island. I live over on the island I've lived there now for 20-something years, and I kind of people know who I am over on that island, and I eat out a lot in my travels and stuff, and people know who I am, and so for the glory of God, I'm generous. I actually have been so generous, and this is to the glory of God, that my credit card sends me emails all the time saying, did you really tip 40% or did they do that? And I'm like, no, it was me. We've had waitresses chase us in the parking lot and say, why? Thank you, but why? And we've had opportunity to share the good news of Jesus because God is good. And you know, when COVID hit, because of that, a lot of places didn't even, can't find workers. 
Some of your favorite restaurants only have to be like half open because they can't staff it because aren't, people aren't willing to work right now. My wife and I, because of our travels and my traveling preaching ministry, we have to eat out a lot on the road. And it's been hard to find places that are open. And when we do, we tell that person that's serving us, listen, we are so grateful that you're willing to work. We're going to bless you tonight and make it you so glad you came because we couldn't eat if it wasn't for you. Thank you. And folks, I'm just going to tell you, have you tried to cheat a little bit to someone else's detriment to take care of you? Or, hey, I got, I got a, little, a little extra. I'm not going to tell anybody. That's the same attitude of these rich people. They're more concerned about their possessions and their increase than they are the people that it affects. I'm just going to ask you. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Write these down. We don't have time to look at them. I'm going to give you four passages. I want you to go look at the old, in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 10, 1 through 4. Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Amos 4, 1 through 3. Amos chapter, 4, chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Amos 8, 4 through 6. And Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. Malachi 3, 5. Now those four again are Isaiah 10, 1 through 4. Amos 4, 1 through 3. Amos 8, 4 through 6. And Malachi 3, 5. And you're going to see that in every single one of those, God is letting Israel have it. Why? Because of how they cheated the widow and the poor. Let me ask you a question. Would we also not agree that we see corruption in our court system where people buy their verdicts and the righteous in the earth are being pushed aside in favor of bigger and better prophets? Sure. But the Bible actually says we're to live holy lives that speak truth and love, but still keep our trust in God and his provision for us, even if that means death and imprisonment in this life. Go back to James 5. Isn't that interesting? At the very end of this whole section, talking to the rich and how they've stored up all this stuff for themselves, but they weren't rich toward God. And then when they die, it's going to be used as a judgment against them because they just stored it up for themselves, even though it doesn't do them any good. And who's it going to be now? And then you've also gotten this wealth by cheating people and fraud. Look at what he says in verse six. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I'm going to read to you a couple of scriptures from the words of Jesus and also Jesus through one of his apostles that need to speak to us in these days in which we live. Folks, let me just tell you right now, the almighty dollar is what's going to really decide what goes on in the world. That is really what's behind everything. We, we should know this. We're living in a world that is ruled by Satan. We should not be surprised that that is the attitude of the world. But unfortunately, many Christians who really don't trust that God will provide are getting up in arms and wanting to fight. Listen, we should speak the truth. We should never back down from what is righteousness and what isn't. We should be involved in the political process. We should be praying for our leaders. We should be voting. We should be involved. But listen, once we move over that edge to where we think that we have to do something, because if we don't do something, God can't. Oh, do you see where we've gone? Go to Matthew chapter 5. 
Matthew chapter 5, listen to verses 39 through 42. And by the way, this is Jesus speaking. Matthew chapter 5, verse 39 and following. We'll start in verse 38, actually. 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and don't refuse the one from the one who would borrow. What's the attitude behind all of this? God's got me. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 5, it was talking about how there was lawsuits in the church? And Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Why not be defrauded? Well, I, I have my rights. I think he laid those all down. Go to Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Matthew 5, look at verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you remember how in the book of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer talks about how they stood there and watched and took care while their brothers and sisters had their property plundered? They gave up everything to follow Jesus. Why? They weren't living for this world. Again, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't speak up when evil is being done. But at the same time, we should never do it in our flesh to the point that if we don't do something, something's not going to happen. We've all of a sudden stopped trusting in God. And James says, he doesn't resist you. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. 1 Peter 2, verse 16. Ah, I'm going to go verse 13. There's so much stuff here. Go to verse 13. 1 Peter 2, 13 and following. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, relaxed, <laughs> knowing that God's got us, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, that's where we're putting our trust, where our treasure is, that's where our heart's going to be. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I'm going to close tonight by asking you a question in just a second, but this reminds me of something that I found as I was just kind of reading through the scriptures and saw the story of David as his son Absalom tries to take over the kingdom and David has to flee. And as David is fleeing, Shimei comes out from the lineage of Saul and starts cursing David, throwing rocks at him. And some of David's mighty men, as David's quietly, humbly leaving the city, some of David's mighty men said, do you want us to go cut his head off? And David humbly says, no. He said, um, if God's having him do this, I'd be telling him to stop when God told him to do it. And if he is not doing this because God told him to do it, but he's doing it on his own, God will deal with him. Did you catch that? This is King David. But he humbled himself and he took it. Why? Because he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And he even was humble enough to say, I don't know the full purpose of what God's putting me through right here, but I don't want to stop it if this is something God has in mind and I'm deserving of this discipline. Oh, by the way, when he became king again, Shimei comes running to him and falls down and says, um, I hope you will be willing to forgive what I did as you left. <laughs> and one of his buddy, uh, David's buddies says, you want us to cut his head off? David says, no, this isn't a day of murder. This is a day of celebration. I'm back as king. Again, God's going to take care of him, not me. Folks, I want to encourage you. As Christians in these days, it's going to get worse. The almighty dollar is going to be behind everything. But at the same time, we as Christians should continue entrusting ourselves to God. Now I'm going to ask you a, a question as we close tonight. I wrote that this way. Jim, these people that James was writing to in the church, were they even saved? The answer is we don't know. We don't know. But interestingly enough, not only does God know, but this sure sounds a lot like what was written by, the, by Jesus to the church in Laodicea. Listen to Revelation 3 as we close tonight. Jesus is writing to the church in Laodicea in verses 14 through 22. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And as you know, it was not only a literal church that existed at that time, it was also a picture of what's going to happen during the church age. And in verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write... The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. In other words, he knows the truth. The beginning of God's creation. This is Jesus. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. By the way, all descriptions of the lost. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, 
As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Folks, don't be surprised that in the last days, the churches are going to look a lot like this. I'm just going to encourage you, don't be one of them. Don't be one of them. Let the Lord show you how to trust him and then let him Lord be the Lord of your life with what it is he's blessed you with. I love you. We'll see you next week. Next week's passage is going to be a little more fun. It's going to talk to believers who are living it. All right. Thanks for coming.